And so we have this prophecy. There's a, actually a group in Israel today that will go and talk to people uh, who are living in Israel who are Jewish. And they'll ask them, have you ever read Isaiah 53? It's called, it's called the Isaiah 53 Project, I believe. And um, most of them will say no. And then they read it to them in Hebrew, in the original. And then they ask him, what do you think this is about? And they're dumbfounded. Um, I had a service book from World War II. That's a little bit before my time. But it was the, the Bibles that were given out. As soon as you can find the New Testaments from World War II, and they'll have the ones for... Um, it's a New Testament, and it has in the beginning it'll have a you know, the signature printed of President Roosevelt at the time. And they also had one that they did for Jewish soldiers, which had sections of the Old Testament. And it was interesting because in Isaiah, most of Isaiah is there, but from the chapter 53, the rabbis that decided which text would be in there conveniently decided, well, let's not put Isaiah 53 in there. It might cause some confusion. Okay, so we're going to try to straighten out some confusion here tonight because. It is talking about the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sufferings for his people. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We thank you for this portion of scripture that you gave to us through your servant, the prophet Isaiah, during the, the time of King Hezekiah in the, the kingdom of Judah. You had him write it down, and you've had it preserved and copied through the ages, Lord, through the centuries. Then you had it translated into our language, and we thank you so much that we can read your word and hear it. We pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to our hearts, and that you'd really help us to understand what you have said here, and that the impact of this awesome passage and what it's speaking of prophetically, and for us as we consider those events historically, we pray, Lord, that just the power of the resurrection of Christ and the power of his sufferings by the work of your Spirit, would truly come home to us and transform us into your servants who love you and give you thanks. And Lord, you receive us as your very own sons and daughters. We recognize it's because of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ when he took our sins upon him, as this passage declares. So give us good understanding. Help me to expound it correctly. Help us all to receive what you have said in the Holy Scriptures. And give us grace not to be forgetful hearers, but by your grace, Lord, to become effectual doers and trusting you. For this we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, very simply, we've read the passage. I thank the men that read the sections here for us tonight. And now it's always a comfort to hear uh, the Word of God being read. And so, in this, it starts off, I've got the old King James in my notes, so it's the same pretty much as the new King James. But Isaiah starts off and says, Who has believed our report? This is a question. This chapter begins with a question. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now the arm of the Lord in the scripture means the strength of Yahweh, the strength of the Lord. To whom is it revealed? Not all see this, not all know it. And then it begins to talk about the obscurity of this suffering servant of God. Keep in mind, in Isaiah's day, they're yet eight centuries away from the events being fulfilled. So Isaiah is speaking this and He's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who transcends time and space. He's God. He's one with the Father and the Son. And he inspiring Isaiah to write, he then describes the obscurity of the Messiah. He says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. In other words, kind of an unexpected thing. You know, dry ground, we've had experienced drought here for the last few years. It's really nice. You know, we prayed few months back, asked God to end the drought. He heard our prayers. We really need to be thanking him. Uh, 
but you know we don't get surprised when we see a root come out of moist ground or you know good ground. But dry ground, it's rather unusual sometimes to see something sprout up. Well, at this point in Israel's history, you know Israel, the, the northern kingdom was gone. The tribe, the kingdom of Judah in the south, and basically was under under the, the heel, the iron heel of Rome. Many things were going on, and it just seemed like it were dark days for the people of God. It looked like dry ground, but yet the Messiah came. As a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Some of the Puritans have pointed out the problem with the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ was us, not him. Uh, there's no, none more beautiful than the Lord Jesus Christ. But after his physical appearance, he looked like an average Jewish man of the, of the day. He didn't come in pomp. He wasn't like Saul, a head taller than all the men in Israel. Um, he's not described as being strikingly good-looking or things like that. Sometimes people who violate the Second Commandment like to have, you know, the, the macho Jesus or something, and there's no really warrant for that in Scripture. The idea here is that when he comes, it wouldn't be a physical attraction. It wouldn't be like, oh, this guy is just so beautiful and awesome. You know, like some movie star or something. There's no beauty that we should desire him. Again, we see his obscurity, even to the point it says, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. People turned away from him. Some of the things he said, the fact that he became the object of controversy, uh, that people separated from him, they didn't want to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly when the authorities, the religious authorities, began to go after him because he, they refused. They recognized him as a threat to their power. They said, we hid as, our, as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But then Isaiah begins to speak of his sufferings. So we've seen his obscurity and then here he describes his sufferings in some detail. We saw in Psalm 22, even to the point where it says, they've pierced my hands and my feet. They divided my garments among them. Uh, my tongue cleaves to my mouth. All my bones are out of joint. The crucifixion is being described a thousand years before it happened. Psalm 22 started out with the words that Christ himself said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many theologians in looking at that, and Christians through the centuries have recognized in the Apostles' Creed, when we speak of Christ descending into hell, that's when it happened. It was on the cross that Christ bore the hell that we deserve. He took the punishment of all our sins. You're a believer here tonight. I don't care if your faith is strong or weak. You can say, my faith isn't that strong, but I do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he's the Savior. I called upon him. I'm trusting in him. Jesus died for your sins. He took all the wrath of God that could ever fall upon you. It's often described as the vessel, you know, the cup of God's wrath. He drank it dry. That's why, you know, in communion, we, we, the, the text that says, I'll take the cup of salvation and give thanks to the Lord. Uh, there's the, the physical cup here, but that cup of salvation, there's no wrath in our relationship with God. It's been satisfied. And know what it says. It says in verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He bore them, he carried our sorrows. And we esteemed, excuse me, uh, Yet we, we did esteem him stricken when he was suffering for the sins of his people. Some of those people that would later come to saving faith on the day of Pentecost, about 40 days later, some of those very people that had mocked him and had stopped because Peter told them, he said, you have taken 
the one that God has appointed to be determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken him with wicked hands, have crucified and slain. So Peter identifies his audience on the day of Pentecost, some of them as being the ones that were there crying for Christ to be crucified. As they were crying out for him to be crucified, he was being or getting ready to be crucified for their sins. That's our Savior. And you know, he could have called 10,000 angels, as the hymn says, but actually, that hymn's based on what Jesus said at one point. He could have stopped it. He didn't have to do it. There was no reason other than his love for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But then God corrects our misunderstanding. He says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Legally, Jesus became you on the cross. You know, we talked about this, I mentioned it before, the doctrine of original sin. Adam represented you in the garden, represented all of his children born by natural generation. So if you're here, you're a descendant of the first Adam. Adam was your legal representative. Legally, he was you. So when he sinned against God and ate that forbidden fruit, he plunged himself and all of his posterity into death and into the curse of death and the wrath of God and all the sufferings and everything that have come on mankind come because of that first sin of Adam and all the other sins that we have committed ourselves. Adam represented us in the garden. Christ represented you at the cross. We can say Adam was you legally in the garden of Eden. So when he sinned, he lost it for you. Christ legally was you on the cross. So when he suffered, God accepts the sufferings of Christ as if you yourself had been crucified. And not just the physical suffering, because you notice in this passage, it speaks of, he shall see the suffering of his soul. His soul shall be an offering for sin. The travail of his soul. He poured out his soul. Uh, in verses 17 and, uh, excuse me, 10, 11, and 12. It references that Christ suffered as to his soul. His sufferings were so far beyond anything that we could experience, anything that we could know. It wasn't just physical. It was in his soul when he cried out. And that's why, as I say, many have pointed out that when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That at that moment, the Father turned away his comfortable presence from Christ, and Christ was the object of God's just anger and eternal wrath against us. And because Jesus is the Son of God, an eternal person, he could suffer in time and satisfy that justice for you. You and I couldn't do it. We'd have to go to hell for all eternity because we've sinned against an eternal God. The one who is eternal in his person took to himself a human nature, became a real man, and suffered the intensity of all of us burning in hell for eternity. What Jesus underwent for us, we can't know. It says in Hebrews that he, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish, without spot to God. He, through the eternal spirit, there was something of eternity in his sufferings. And that's why when Jesus, after his body was broken, his blood had been shed, he had suffered those hours of when there was darkness over the face of the earth. Before he died, one of the last things he said was, very interesting, because some of the gospel writers tell us that he shouted something. He let a great cry out. Matthew, Mark, and Luke make reference to that. John tells us what that cry was, and some of you know, don't you? His cry was, it is finished. 
One word in Greek, tetelestai, whether you spoke in Greek or Aramaic, somebody can argue that another time. But the original inspired text is tetelestai, and that's in the perfect tense, meaning it's done and it stays done. It is finished. Jesus had done everything to save us. He bore our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, or for our peace, was upon him. What needed to be punished so that we could have God's peace was punished in Christ. Why? Because God loves you. He gave his son. Christ came voluntarily to die for you. That's how much he loves you. And then it talks about, again, our foolishness. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're indifferent. We don't think about the things of God as we should. We're like sheep. I've worked with sheep in my youth. They're stupid. Okay? They're cute. They're nice. If, you, if you've been around sheep, you know that. They can be really adorable. And there's no way that, you know, you can't say they're as dumb as an ox. An ox is actually probably smarter than most sheep. Sheep do have an intelligence about them, but they're sheep. And this is, a, you know, coming from a time when people were very familiar with shepherds, and they probably heard some shepherd talk about, or they were a shepherd, about, oh, the sheep are wandering around. You know, the sheep are hard to keep track. All we like sheep have gone astray. We were indifferent to the things of God. Praise God, he was not indifferent to us. You know, there's no indifference in, in God's presence regarding the sons of men. We've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Note that. He laid our iniquities on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Here we see the character of Christ emerging. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. 800 years before it happened, it's describing what's, what took place on that first Maudie Thursday, as referred to it, when Christ was arrested and went to the high priest's house and then went to the other uh, high priest and then eventually they brought him before Pilate and all the things. that He did converse somewhat with them, but he didn't uh, rebuke them or, well, in one sense he did, but he didn't uh, try to get out of it or say, you know, oh, you know, uh, I'll just, I'm not going to do this. He went through it for us. He didn't open his mouth. As he said, do you not know I could call 10,000 angels right now, or 10 legions? Uh, he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? That is, the people that belong to him. Where did this one come from? Uh, for he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he is stricken, or was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. This was fulfilled Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man. And Christ died with two thieves on either side. One repented, as you know, one didn't. Uh, but they were men who had been justly condemned. Uh, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb nearby. It had never been used. And he said, let the Lord rest there. Let's, we can bury the Lord Jesus there. Uh, and Joseph's an awesome person because... At, you might say at the lowest point in our Lord's ministry, when he was physically dead, he stepped forward and identified himself as a follower of Jesus. That's a courage, and that was by the grace of God in his life. And Nicodemus did the same thing, him and Joseph of Arimathea. Christ made his grave with uh, the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus had no sin. That's why... 
Christ enters humanity through the virgin conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So he's a true descendant of Adam through Mary, but not by natural generation. So Adam's sin was never imputed to Christ. And that's why Jesus was conceived sinlessly, lived a sinless life. Jesus always loved God as God should be loved by a human being, as to Jesus' humanity. Jesus always loved his neighbor the way it should be done. He kept God's law perfectly. Remember what the Father said? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The last time God was able to say anything like that would have been before Adam sinned. After Adam sinned, that was never said. God did say of David, he's a man after my own heart, but that was purely by grace. But everything about Jesus was pleasing to the Father. And in his sinlessness, he then was able to die, not for any sins of his own, because the wages of sin is death. He didn't owe anything to death. Death had no legal claim upon him. But by having our sins legally imputed to him, he became subject to God's wrath and to death. And he died. But God lets us know he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Christ didn't die for his own sins because he had none, but he took our sins upon him. That's why once you pay for our sins, and we're going to come today, I hope you, if you'd like, come back. Okay, We're going to have a breakfast at 9.30 and then a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus at 10.30. And it's going to be good, okay, to be with your brothers and sisters and also praise God. But So I'll put a little plug in there for Sunday morning. But the resurrection is so awesome because Jesus took all our sins, paid for them. Death had no claim upon it. So the third day, our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead as a true man. He's God and man in one person. Christ broke the bars of death. He's risen from the dead, never to die again. Christ is, has conquered death. It's done. It, it, Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, he referred to Jesus as having abolished death. The Greek word means to annul it. He made it of no power. And so for us, when we leave this life, we pass from this life into the presence of God. Uh, it's going to be glorious. Because of Jesus, he had done no sin. So when, once he paid for the sins placed upon him, once he suffered the hell we deserve, God couldn't hold him. He's risen from the dead. So praise God for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in the plan of God, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now, bruise is an interesting word. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? When God rebuked the serpent, he said to the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. The Hebrew word for bruise is suf, means to crush. He shall bruise your head. That's what Jesus did. He destroyed Satan and took all of his power away from him. It was usurped anyway. But then he also said, and you shall bruise or crush his heel. I was literally physically fulfilled at the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. And we remember, though, that it wasn't the serpent completely. It was all part of God's plan. It pleased the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Again, we see the depth of his sufferings. God is the one that sent his son. God is the one that had Christ die. Jesus did it voluntarily. He's one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But God himself is involved in this. Well, you shall make his soul an offering for, for sin. He shall see his seed, that is, those who will be born again through faith in him. 
those whom the Father has given to the Son. He shall prolong his days. Wait a minute, it just described him dying, and now it says he's going to prolong his days. The Holy Spirit knew about the resurrection. It was all planned. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Here now we see the success of the Messiah. The one who suffered is going, his death is going to be effective in saving his people. Uh, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul. He's going to see the travail of his soul. That is what he went through, the purpose of it. He's going to see the fruits of it born. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, that is, make them right with God, for he shall bear their iniquities. He took your sins away, beloved. You don't need to be afraid. Christ has risen from the dead. Your sins have been paid for. God loves you. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Romans chapter 8, the last few verses. Therefore God says, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's referring to the exaltation of Christ now. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, all those who will trust in him. And he made intercession for the transgressors. You know, that last line I was reminded when they were crucifying Jesus, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a description of all of us. Isaiah 53, God gave his word, and he kept his word. And Jesus Christ came, died for us, has risen again, he's ascended into heaven, he sees the travail of his soul, he is satisfied, the Father is well pleased with the Son always. And that we see this plan of redemption going forth. And it even finds out folks like you and me. So we have hope. We can have joy. We ought to be the happiest people on earth, whatever our trials. Because they're temporary. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we have good reason to rejoice. When we see wicked prospering, just pray. Don't be afraid. It'll fall. Eventually it always does. We need to trust in the Lord. Do what is right. But know that the Lord Jesus Christ, He has secured the victory, and He gets all the glory and all the praise for all the good that's in us and around us and in this world, because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He came, died for us, and rose again. Praise His name. Well, that's Isaiah chapter 53. Thank you for being patient with me. I just wanted to share that with you. So let's close in prayer, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I do want to mention that if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for all your salvation... The Bible says we need to examine ourselves, that is, we go to God in prayer, and we ask Him to forgive us the things that the Holy Spirit brings to mind that we shouldn't have done, either sins we've committed or duties we left undone. We ask for forgiveness, but then we recognize, God says if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So we confess our sins and then we celebrate the sacrament, that is, it's a picture of the body and blood of Jesus that was offered for sinners one time at Calvary's cross. Bread stays bread, the wine stays wine. They're symbols, they don't change into the body and blood of Jesus. They're, they're bread and they're wine. But they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the word sacrament. It comes, it's a Latin word from the Greek mysterion, where we get the word mystery. And it means there's more going on than just what you see in. There's more happening here because the Holy Spirit is present. And we really do draw our spiritual nourishment from the body and blood of Christ as we eat and as we drink. Not because the elements change, but because what Jesus did for us at the cross is applied afresh to our hearts as we trust in him and have fellowship with him at his table. So 
Let's close in prayer, and then we'll uh, have the Lord's Supper. So I want you to know, if you qualify as a saint, you're believing in Jesus, willing to examine yourself, you're certainly welcome to participate in the Lord's table here. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this section of your word in Isaiah 53. We thank you, Lord, for coming, Lord Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. We thank you that you, when you shout it out, it is finished, Lord. We thank you because that involves us. Lord, you did everything necessary to save us, and we thank you, Lord God Almighty, for applying that salvation to us, for finding us out. Some of it, almost 2,000 years later, Lord, you waited until we were born, and then you had us hear your word and come to faith in your Son. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Increase our love for you and for each other, we pray, and bless us. We ask you also now to bless these elements of bread and of wine that we here set aside and consecrate in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to this holy use, which he himself ordained on that very night before he suffered. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bless these elements. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would bless them. And, Lord, we pray you would make your gracious presence known here with us as we dine at your table. Help us to remember you, Lord Jesus, as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For this, Father, we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.